Today's episode of the Rossafari podcast is co-hosted by the one and only Colleen Adams. Hello, I'm John Rossi. I'm a touring drummer with a passion for animal conservation. When I'm on the road, I spend as much time as possible visiting zoos, aquariums, and conservation organizations. Now, I want to share those places with you. I'll be talking to keepers, vets, conservationists, anyone who can help me in my mission of connecting my people to animals through their people. Join me on my raw safari. Hello, 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 and welcome back to another episode of the Raw Safari podcast, this time featuring Colleen Adams as the co-host. Say hello, Colleen. Colleen? Oh, wait, we didn't actually record any intro part together. We just recorded the interview together, so that explains why I'm sitting here alone doing this and that didn't work. Also probably a good thing is it's 1.15 in the morning and I'm in a bedroom and, um, yeah. So anyway, um, welcome to the pod. I'm excited to have you all here. And uh, for those of you who don't know, Colleen Adams is a frequent guest and is also somebody who's co-hosted the podcast a couple of times, and we have a lot of fun doing that. We had extra fun this time because we interviewed somebody who is on her team, Mark Muthersbaugh. And uh, we, we got to do a thing that I don't usually get to do when I'm meeting people for the first time for an interview, which is that we, uh, we sat and ate lunch together and goofed around and joked and had fun. And so not only were Colleen and I having a blast being goofy friends, but Mark and I got to be goofy friends and then had a blast of doing that as well. So um, this podcast, there's a lot of really, really good content. And some real goofy moments. And yeah, I'm not going to lie. I actually had to cut two of the moments because we just got so ridiculously off the rails. And um, <laughs> and even with that, you're going you're gonna to listen to this and you're going to be like, but wait, no, you forgot to cut the moments because there are goofy moments. But um, no, there, there were other ones. Uh, suffice to say, it was a really good time doing this episode. Um, so I'm looking forward to sharing it with you. Uh, Colleen and Mark work at the Cincinnati Zoo, and they take care of ambassador animals, and you're going to hear all about that, and you're going to hear about, man, Mark just has a really cool journey, and um, there, there's a lot of insight in what he has to say, and Colleen gets a lot out of him, and even at one point kind of uh, helps us refocus when uh, when the goofy starts to take over again. But this is this is a fun one. This is a really laid back and informative episode all at once. And I'm excited to share it with you. But first, a commercial. Today's episode is brought to you by Daydreamers Studios. Do you have stories and expertise to share with the world? Have you ever thought about starting your own podcasts? There's no better time to start than now with the help of a trusted production partner. Daydreamer Studios is a full-service production company that takes all the stress off your plate. You can focus on creating engaging content while they focus on recording, editing, audio engineering, hosting, and publishing on 22 platforms. Log into the advanced remote system with one click and the Daydreamer team will be on the other end ready for you to record everything you have to say. Owned and operated by Daydreamer Network, Daydreamer Studios continues on the company's mission to empower storytellers of all kinds by making podcasting accessible to all. 
For more information and current promotions, visit daydreamernetwork.com slash studios. And as always, a quick reminder to make sure that you're following along. Uh, make sure you've hit subscribe in the podcast app. And yo, if you could go and leave me like a rating or a review, especially if you're on Spotify or on Apple Podcasts, it really super duper helps people find the podcast, which is one of my goals. Want, want more people to listen because, you know, we want to share the amazing word about the work being done by these incredible humans. So, uh, yeah, do that. Please also follow along on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at Rossafari, TikTok at Rossafari Pod, you know, all the places, all the things. But I've talked enough. It's time to get to the interview. So without further ado, here is my and Colleen Adams interview with Mark Muthersbaugh of the Cincinnati Zoo. <laughs> So uh, today I am here to talk to some guy named Mark, but I don't care because I'm here with our friend Colleen Adams. Colleen, how are you? I'm doing great, and we do very much care about Mark. He is one of my dear teammates, so take that back, John. Whatever. We'll get to him. Then we'll care. But um, I'm just so happy to hang out with you again. This is fun. Yeah. So um, how are you? Let's give everyone a quick catch-up before we move on to that Mork guy or whatever. No, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Mark, we're glad you're here. We're excited. We've already been hanging out, so I can, I can pick on Mark a little bit. But um, yeah, what's new? I'm doing great overall. Um, not a whole lot has changed in the in the world of the animals that I care for. Um, however, I do have exciting news that I've recently been elected as the vice coordinator of the Batyard Fox SSP Woo! or um, Species Survival Plan. So that's going to mean a lot more Batyard Fox work for my team and for Mark, who's going to be like my my co fox guy on the team. So we're really really excited for all the work we're going to do. Awesome. And you will be sharing that with us as things happen? Absolutely. Yay. Very cool. Well, um, for those listening, Colleen will be co-hosting as we have done before. So um, that's all the update you get from Colleen now, but you'll be hearing her voice and we love Colleen. But all right. So let's move on to the actual subject of today's interview. I just got to meet a screaming hairy armadillo and I want one of you to tell me everything because that was magic. Yeah, so you had the opportunity to meet Rose today. Uh, she is one of our Screaming Hairy Armadillos, an absolute rock star, uh, which goes along with our naming convention for them. Um, so all of our Screaming Hairy Armadillos are named after famous rock stars. We have uh, Alice and Cooper, who are a pair, uh, Bonnie and Jovi, who are a pair, and uh, you met Rose, who is the counterpart. Her uh, sibling was named Axel. I love that so much. And um, if you're listening to this and you don't know what a screaming hairy armadillo is, um, that's not a made-up name. They they scream and are hairy. Yeah, it's actually pretty descriptive. Um, they are mammals, so hair comes with that territory. Uh, but their defense mechanism, uh, aside from the armor plating, is actually to uh, let out a squeal or scream when they feel threatened. We don't hear it much from ours because as ambassador animals, they're pretty accustomed to uh, that ambassador lifestyle. And we also take a lot of measures to make sure that nothing in their environment is stressing. Very cool. And uh, is there anything else that either of you would like to add about our friend before we actually, you know, get to your interview? Um, watching them eat is one of the most entertaining uh, situations that you can come upon. Uh, it's it's really lip smacking good. <laughs> I know you like doing animal impressions, so do you have a, an impression of, of a, uh, a Screaming Harry Armadillo eating? Uh, I, I don't know that I 
I have like a juicy enough <laughs> apple or anything to. We'll edit that in later. Yeah, yeah. perfect. We'll, we'll just yeah, we'll just get a clip. It's just fine. bring me a bowl of soaked insectivore diet, and I'll see what I can do. <laughs> that is all you. <laughs> Perfect. Awesome. Well, thanks for indulging me on the goofiness at the beginning. But um, let's let's get to it for real. So so tell me um, who you are, where we are, and what you do here. Hi, my name is Mark Muthersbaugh. <laughs> um, I am currently a member of the uh, Interpretive Collection, uh, keeper staff here at the Cincinnati Zoo. Um, my history with Cincinnati is sort of long and convoluted. I've worked in a lot of different departments throughout here and found my way to a permanent position in March of last year. So super excited to be part of the team. Uh, it combines uh, my passion for sharing that information uh, with guests and also the husbandry care and training aspect component. So it really, really is a match made in heaven. I love that. That's so cool. And um, tell me a little bit about the, uh, the other teams that you've been on here. Yeah, so I actually moved to Cincinnati to uh, be a part of the AIP, uh, Advanced Inquiry Program. It's a graduate program uh, accredited by Miami University and affiliated with several satellite zoo campuses. Um, so my original move to Cincinnati was for that. Um, I have since graduated with my master's degree, so... Yay, you. <laughs> and this is this is for those listening. This is um, Project Dragonfly, which, which you've yes. heard about more than once on this podcast. So, yeah. Um, so I completed that. And then over the course of that time, I had volunteered in the Africa department doing some uh, care and husbandry there. Um, I had worked for a few seasons in the wild encounters department doing animal handling and interpretive education. Um, I had also interned with our animal excellence uh, team. Uh, looking at uh, welfare improvements and space usage and time budgets uh, for some of our animals on grounds. I worked for two and a half years with the Cat Ambassador Program, uh, doing the cheetah runs that we have here on grounds, um, and then temped for a brief period of time in the Africa Department before moving over to Interpretive permanently. Can you talk to us a little bit more about your time with Cat Ambassador? And I believe that you worked with two of the celebrities that have come out of that department. Can you talk about them a little bit, Chris and Remus? Oh, yeah, absolutely. So um, I was lucky enough during my time uh, as part of the Cat Ambassador program, um, we had a cheetah cub that was born at the uh, Mass Farm Breeding Center, um, which is a, a zoo-owned uh, property um, but is off grounds from our downtown uh, botanical garden and zoo uh, location. And so uh, Chris was actually a, a single cub born in a litter. Interesting thing about cheetahs is if they only have one cub, uh, physiologically their milk will dry up, and so that, uh, that cub will not survive. And that's a reproductive strategy. Cheetahs take about two years to raise their cubs to adulthood, um, and they have a really high mortality rate. So if there's only one cub, uh, the chances of that one cub making it overall are pretty slim. And so it actually is more beneficial if you're looking at numbers and reproductive strategy-wise um, for that female to go into another cycle and hopefully have a larger litter. Um, so when that happens in a zoo setting, um, that's an opportunity for uh, those cubs to be uh, hand-reared, and oftentimes they will uh, participate in the ambassador programs so that's uh, the story of what happened with Chris. Uh, it happened with a number of the other cheetah ambassadors that we have here, too. Um, and when they grow up as a single cub, they don't have any siblings to run or wrestle around with. 
Um, so we've actually found that pairing them with a dog um, as a playmate to grow up with and, and learn how to run and wrestle and be an animal um, has been really successful. And so Chris and Remus, uh, Remus was adopted from a local shelter, and uh, the two of them have been growing up together and romping around and having a great time. <laughs> And uh, talk to me a little bit about Remus, because um, Remus is not a traditional cheetah dog by any stretch of the imagination. Yeah, so uh, looking at cheetah dog uh, matchups, it's not necessarily breed specific for the dog. Uh, what, we're, what the program really looks for is um, approximate size of the dog uh, and then personality more than anything else. Um, so we're looking for a dog that is um, active, that is playful, um, but that we can also see uh, reads the cues of when we're when we're doing the interview process for these <laughs> dogs. Um, reads the cues of like other puppies that might be in the area. Um, we want to see confidence, but also the ability for that animal to to read when other animals have maybe had too much and back off a little. Well, I guess that would explain why labs are used pretty often. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Great temperament there. Yes, because labs are perfect. Hi, Perry. I love you. <laughs> I have a black lab that actually yesterday, as we're recording this, was her one-year gotcha day for us. So, yeah. Happy gotcha day. Well, congratulations. <laughs> um, circling back to cheetahs for just a minute, I believe that just pretty recently you were able to see cheetahs in the wild. Is that correct? That is true. Do you want to talk about that and what kind of impact that trip had on you? Um, yeah, it was a really exciting time. Uh, a group of friends from uh, the Cincinnati Zoo and then a couple of our friends, uh, one from uh, Nashville at the time and one from Fort Worth, uh, all got together, saw that there was a crazy deal on flights to Kenya and kind of on a whim booked a two-week trip um, to go to Kenya last November. And it was an absolutely incredible experience. Um, one person on the trip had never been out of the country before. Whoa. So yeah, wow. that was, that was quite a jump for a first trip. Um, and a number of the people had worked in some capacity with, uh, the cat ambassador program here as well. Um, so we were really, really excited to be able to go at all. Um, and we all kind of had a, a, a wish list of what we had kind of wanted to see and, knew that there was no guarantees when we were out on our game drives and we ended up seeing literally everything on that list, um, including one amazing morning in uh, the Masai Mara National Reserve uh, where we saw the big five within about two hours. Um, so it was a, an absolutely mind-blowing trip. We'd and the big five are? Oh, uh, <laughs> that would be the uh, Cape Buffalo, Lion, Leopard, black rhino, and elephant. Whew. Yeah, it was it was a big morning for the big five. Um, <laughs> but one of the uh, one of the other highlights of the trip um, when we first arrived in uh, in Kenya, the the first park that we went to was in uh, Amboseli, and during our evening game drive just into the park. Um, we happened upon uh, a female cheetah that was right on the edge of the Amboseli territory. Um, our uh, our driver, our tour driver, who was absolutely amazing, uh, gave us the estimate that there are only about six or seven cheetahs in the entire park. Um, so it was really, really special to get to see that. 
Um, it had been a dream of one of the people on our trip uh, who works currently with the Cat Ambassador Program uh, to see a cheetah out in the wild. And it was super emotional, really, really happy uh, moment. Um, and then that was also followed up later in the trip with seeing uh, a mom with four cubs in tow Ooh. when we visited Samburu. Um, and then we saw a couple other throughout our time in the Masai Mara as well. That's really awesome. That's really cool. And how is that an impact? I'm good at this. Impacted was the word you were going Thank you. I might leave that in now. Yeah. Yeah. So how has that impacted you now that you're back here? Yeah. um, It really brought uh, a lot of joy to see animals that I had cared for throughout my various zoo experiences um, out and about in their their, uh, native ranges and natural settings. Um, it was really cool to see some animals doing things that we had never considered them doing before. We've always told guests that giraffes don't usually, uh, traverse terrain that's, uh, not flat. We saw some giraffes that were pretty high up on a hillside. Um, we saw an, an eland, the giant antelope, um, clear probably a 10 foot embankment on the side of the road just from a standing start (laughs) um just amazing animal experiences and encounters throughout the entire trip that's really cool um and you know you were talking about how one of the people was from nashville was this johnny Payne? it was yeah johnny's been on the pod before so um, yeah Yeah. so those who are are all the way back i think that was a very early episode uh the the episode after colleen i think first joined us but yeah so that's johnny and as a quick update to johnny she's out at the uh, san diego zoo safari park now and and killing the game out there so probably shouldn't use the term killing the game Uh, game is animals she's not killing animals friends she's just doing a really good job so anyway ask a question colleen save me for myself (laughs) okay so back to animals doing what is natural for them um you mentioned that you saw animals doing things you hadn't ever thought of them doing before um i know you and i know that probably got your wheels turning about how we could maybe set up environments back here at cincinnati to elicit some of those behaviors and you play a special role on our team when it comes to providing enrichment to our animals can you talk a little bit about about what are your hopes for our program? What are some of the things you're trying to accomplish? Just talk about enrichment for a minute. Yeah, absolutely. Um, it's always been something that's uh, kind of been a passion of mine, looking at animals, looking at what they should be doing and trying to encourage those natural behaviors. Um, some of the stuff we actually, on our, not specific to Africa, but on one of our walks through the park, uh, Colleen and I, We're out one morning and we looked up and the the red pandas here were up in the very crown of the tree on a branch that should not have supported their full (laughs) weight. And they were having a ball. Um, And it it really got us thinking in terms of like, if I'm perching a new space, I want to make sure that it's secure for the animals. But it really shone a new light into... um, taking appropriate risks um, and allowing, you know, the the possibility of landing on a dynamic moving perch. Those are really important muscles to build up. That's really important uh, balance for whatever animal to um, to be able to accomplish uh, and, and hone their own skills in the world. Um, so it was really inspiring to look at that, even something as simple as the the everyday environment that they're in being something that could be more dynamic. 
That's awesome. Yeah. And it's easy to be inspired by the red pandas here with that kind of thing, because first of all, red pandas rock. But second of all, um, I've noticed that um, here specifically and also at Columbus, which is the same family, um, the the pandas are like real climbers and spend a lot of time in the tree. And I, I remember the first time that I was here and I saw Lynn up in a tree and I was like, you are going to die, friend. And then when I was at Columbus, same thing. I, uh, Cora was out on a little branch and I was like, nope, 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 they can't support you. Stop. And of course she was fine because they know what they're doing. But um, it's it's so amazing to get to see those natural behaviors, like you said, when the ability – to do so is presented and, and sometimes it's not. And, and I think that's awesome that you're so inspired to keep finding ways to make that happen. Yeah. Long-term goals, uh, include a, a lot more analysis and observation of, um, what we're providing and the way that the animals are interacting with it. So rather than just saying we put a new rock in this enclosure, is the animal actually interacting with it? Are they not? Is it something where that rock is then under a basking lamp for lizards or snakes that would then be going out and basking as a natural behavior? Um, so really looking at the the purpose behind the enrichment and not just checking it off on a list to say, yeah, we we made something different just for the sake of making it different. That makes sense. Yeah, that's really cool. Okay, Mark. So I know both of both you and I agree that one of the best things about being in an ambassador department is that we get to work with a wide variety of species and taxa, and we kind of never know what we're going to end up getting. It's dependent on what the program needs are, what if we're you know needing an animal for cold weather versus warm weather, flying, non-flying. Um, so that being said. I was curious, what are some of your dream animals that you would love to have in an ambassador department and why? What message would you hope to be able to send with those species? Yeah, through, um, and I'm sure anybody else in the department, this would come as no surprise. My <laughs> A number one hope dream above all else um, is to have a raccoon in the nice. department. Yeah. Yes. Uh, I've always loved them. I've loved working with the ones that I've had the chance to do. Um, it's a really dynamic animal. And I think especially for a zoo that is in the middle of a city, having native, uh, native wildlife that can be seen around our neighborhood, um, is a really important connection point. A lot of the people in the immediate neighborhood of the zoo don't spend a whole lot of time in the zoo. And so if we have the ability to connect what they're seeing here with what they might be seeing in their own backyard, um, that's a really important piece of recognizing that wildlife really is everywhere. Um, is that why you guys got a screaming hairy armadillo? Because while I know that armadillos aren't from around here, I do see a lot of screaming and hairy people every time <laughs> I visit Cincinnati. Yeah. Is that Was that part of this? It's as close as we could do with the space that was allotted okay, to us. that makes sense. That's yeah. good. <laughs> Hopefully in the future we'll have a new ambassador building. We might, we might be able to plan the collection a little differently. I just broke Colleen. But... <laughs> But anyway, go on with answering the, the question, please. <laughs> yeah, uh, a lot of times we uh, we have events that go on year-round, um, and many of our animals, the tamanduas, the bat-eared foxes, um, are native to ranges that don't have uh, the same cold temperatures that we see here. Um, so being able to have native animals that are already better adapted to our climate um, and have that connection to local wildlife, I think is really, uh, really an important message to be able to speak to. That's amazing. 
Do you also have a dream, like, impossible ambassador animal? Like, you um, know we'll never do it, but it'd be amazing if. Um, yeah, I've found uh, a lot of um, unexpected interest in my work with hoofstock animals. Uh, my, my first internship working in a zoo setting was uh, at the Audubon Zoo in New Orleans, and I was working with their hoofstock team, and I had never really, like, I had always appreciated giraffes. I never had anything against them. Um, but getting to work with the the four that we had at Audubon um, really just opened my eyes to like how cool new experiences could be, um, and I I love the idea of like being able to talk about super cool uh, herbivore adaptations and how they shape the ecosystems that they're in. Um, just in terms of their own personality dynamics, I know that that is a fully unfeasible um, option. Um, but I think there are still ways to um, have that interaction and have those animals be ambassadors for their species, even if it's not taking them to somewhere or having um, having them outside of what their habitat would be. That makes sense. Um, and, you know, going along with the dream of, of what you could have, what are your dream animals in the collection right now? Who are your faves? Tell me. Tell me about them. Yeah, um, I I feel like my um, my brain usually tends to go towards like the mammal carnivore side of things, um, but again, being open to those new experiences, uh, some of my favorites to work with are um, are free flighted birds. Um, so we have an absolute rock star of a Lady Rosses Taraco, uh, who may have been mentioned here previously, but multiple times. Yeah. Um, Zulu is really great. Um, I've been collaborating on some training plans with, uh, one of our kookaburras and one of our frog mouths. Um, and it's actually been really cool within the last, uh, year. Our team as a whole has been reassessing the way that we are, um, working with our ambassador animals and the way that we're presenting our programming. Um, and so a lot of birds have been coming off of Jess's and we've been, um, working on ways for them to be able to be free flighted. If that's, um, if that's a possibility for each individual. Um, so that's been really nice and eye opening and creative thinking and challenging, uh, to figure out how we can, um, how we can do that. Um, and then back to the original question, uh, I love our bat-eared foxes and tamanduas. Um, Rico, the prehensile-tailed porcupine, uh, is a personal favorite, and everybody knows on a day that you've worked with him because the waft of bio and onion smell that comes off of his body uh, just sort of soaks itself into your clothing and stays with you as a fond memory for the rest of the day. <laughs> That's what we'll call it. Colleen, can we sidebar for a second? Sure. He, he didn't say Lucille. What the hell is wrong with, why did you bring him to me? What are you doing? Well, that's Get him off my podcast. Mark is not on Lucille's direct handling team. But he's in a building with Lucille. Well, not everyone is as obsessed as you and Andrew with Lucille. Sometimes I still smell like popcorn. Mm, I don't like this guy anymore. No, I'm kidding. Okay. But no, that's awesome. But so let's talk about Rico for a second. Um, I am curious about your thoughts about Rico's fame. Because, you know, he's awesome, but he's also, you know, a porcupine. Yeah, I think it's well-deserved. Objectively, he is the most handsome of any prehensile-tailed porcupine I've ever seen. I mean, I actually don't disagree with that. I've seen many, and, and he's pretty gorge. Yeah, well, and I, I have a special connection. We're both native Clevelanders. 
Um, so he was born at the, the Cleveland Zoo, and I spent the majority of my childhood there as a visitor. Um, so it's it's been nice to uh, to reconnect, to talk through some of his favorite spots at the West Side Market, or <laughs> what he has to pick up. What is his favorite spot at the West Side Market? The, uh, the West Side Market, for those of you who haven't been, is a, a super old historic uh, market on the near west side of Cleveland. Um, and the entire outside of the building has produce stands uh, around two sides of it. So that's where that's where Rico prefers to okay, hang out. Okay, that totally makes sense. Yeah, that tracks. Yeah. yeah, I like that. Just snacking away. Corn on the cob, banana chips. Really, it's down for anything. Okay, speaking of snacking away... We recently threw a total bomb birthday party. Please tell us about it. Oh, yes. Uh, So we recently celebrated Rico's sixth birthday. Uh, I I decided uh, every party needs a good theme, especially a birthday party. Um, And so for Rico, um, I decided that we should throw him a porky picnic. (laughs) Um, So we we planned it out, and some of the, uh, the other... Animals in the interpretive department came and, and visited his uh, his, birth, his birthday party. Um, but we have a really special and dedicated group of volunteers here at Cincinnati um, that form something called the Volunteer Enrichment Team. So this goes back to my passion for enrichment as well. Uh, it is an incredibly skilled group of people where you can say something like, I would like to throw a birthday picnic for a porcupine, and they'll say, great, got it. And so they arrived to his party with um, cardboard boxes that were painted to look like gifts addressed to Rico. Uh, they made a uh, cardboard box into a giant picnic basket. They brought a gingham tablecloth. And they actually constructed, like with legitimate carpentry skills, a picnic table that would be something that probably an eight-year-old could comfortably sit at. Um, that was all part of the the scenery for Rico's birthday party. And what did he get to snack on? Yeah, so we um, coordinated with our uh, curator of nutrition as well, and uh, he got to eat a special made cake that was in the shape of a corn on the cob, <laughs> which is one of his uh, <laughs> one of his favorite snacks. Oh, I love that so much. That's awesome. So I'm I'm curious, you um. You mentioned enrichment being such a passion for you. How did that become, and like, what drew you to enrichment? I think it all started uh, with my interest in nature and just observation generally. Um, so, as a kid, we had uh, in my my childhood home, uh, our backyard had a little rocky area with some trees planted around it, and. Um, I would spend a great deal of time flipping over rocks, looking for redback salamanders, just seeing what everything was doing. Um, and so I think the the observation and the interest in those natural behaviors um, is something that was interesting to me from an early age. Um, and it's carried through into sort of a more uh, formalized effort to encourage that. That makes sense. And I know that you mentioned that you did Project Dragonfly, um, but what was your education before that? Yeah, I um, so my, my history with animals goes back. Um, my first sort of professional uh, entrance into the field. Um, growing up in Cleveland, I volunteered at the Natural History Museum there, um, and they had a live animal collection of uh, native Ohio wildlife, including raccoons. 
Nice. Yeah, that's where it all started. Um, and so as a teenager, um, I was volunteering with the, uh, with the wildlife resources uh, department and really did full day work of cleaning, feeding, preparing diets, monitoring animals. Um, and I remember on my 13th birthday, uh, I had been there long enough and had enough experience that um, I planned a program, collected the animals, put them on a cart, went up to the lobby of the museum and presented um, like an interpretive education program to about 150 people. <laughs> um, it was themed small predators. So I took our, uh, our youngster red tail boa, um, one of our ferrets and a screech owl, um, and just did a program. And that was even as a young, like preteen before I was fully employable. Um, that was where I spent all of my time. My mom would joke that <laughs> if they gave me a pillow uh, to sleep there, that she'd never see me again. <laughs> um, and so that that for me was part of what clicked in like, oh, taking care of these animals and talking to people about it is something that would be super cool to do professionally. And then here we are. <laughs> here you are. Yay. <laughs> That's awesome. And you mentioned that you were at Audubon. Uh, anywhere else uh, between or before or any of that? Yeah, so I um, I worked at the Natural History Museum for several years. It ended up being well over a thousand hours of volunteer service um, over the course of my time there. Uh, I did my undergraduate work at Oberlin College, um, so I have an undergrad in biology. Um, did some veterinary internships, and then when I moved to New Orleans um, to do an AmeriCorps program for the first year that I was down there, I ended up getting uh, affiliated with the zoo. Did that internship, um, and after that, looked towards what sort of the next step was, which is when I happened upon uh, the Advanced Inquiry Program with Project Dragonfly, moved to Cincinnati, and then uh, started my involvement with the with the zoo here. Awesome, and I can't help but uh, you know kind of recognize that Audubon has possibly the best raccoon exhibit I've ever seen. So I'm noticing a, a theme here, and it's definitely trash pandas. Yes, will travel for raccoons. Yeah, yeah, which is kind of funny since they're, you know, everywhere. Mm -hmm. but, but yeah, that makes sense. You that have literally sense. followed raccoons. Yeah. <laughs> and now you're hoping one will follow you. Well, yeah, we there were, I worked with five of them at the Natural History Museum, and then there were, oh, I don't, I don't know that I could give you an accurate head count of what was at Audubon, but... <laughs> It's an insane exhibit that they have there, and they have ambassadors and stuff, I believe, if I remember correctly. Or They, they do have an ambassador yeah. department. Um, when I was there, I, I worked with the hoofstock department, and then I also volunteered with the, um, with the jungle and uh, swamp department. So I was working with those raccoons briefly. Too. Nice, nice. Um, and, uh, and so, like, okay, between you and me, no one's going to hear this, but, like, there are raccoons here. <laughs> Cover right? your ears every Yeah, right? Yeah. Nobody, nobody, everybody go get a drink. Um, but there are, like, raccoons in Cincinnati, right? Yeah. Can't you just, like, go get one? Like, Colleen, honestly, like, if he just showed up with a raccoon, couldn't you just say, like, is, is that not how this works? Okay, so serious question. <laughs> how would one go about bringing in something like a raccoon or other native wildlife into an ambassador department? Yeah, that's a that's to a pivot. Right. <laughs> that was such a better question than my question. But I will Why point out that my question would get results. Just it's, saying. yeah, it's the difference of like 
going to the animal shelter and showing up at home and presenting your partner with like an adorable puppy and being like, well, I guess I could take it back if you really don't want it. <laughs> I just had it. the image of Mark walking in with a raccoon and being like, he followed me home. Can I keep him? <laughs> That's not the furthest fetched. No. Yeah. But how would we go yes. about it? Yeah. So um, <laughs> in, a, in a more formalized manner, um, any of that collection planning, uh, we really take into consideration what the message, what the purpose, what the role of that animal would be. Um, so it's not uh, it's not a Pokemon got to catch them all uh, strategy. It's a what are we what are we looking to teach? What are we looking to um, what's the messaging going to be with those animals? Uh, and so our education department here is really incredible at coming up with um, themes for their programming. So our summer camps, even for the same age group, every week will be a different topic. Um, so they do a great job of kind of tailoring that to different subjects. Um, but I think one of the things that's really important, especially now, is creating connections between people and wildlife um, and so that can be accomplished in a number of different ways, either by coming to the zoo and having one of those <gasps> moments um, interacting with the animals that are here. But I think it can also extend beyond just the grounds that we're currently on. Um, and so that was part of where like the raccoon comes in is it is something that you might be more familiar with. It is something that you can learn about and find you know, find that nature in your own neighborhood. And just to make sure we squash John's narrative <laughs> of bringing home a wild raccoon, a lot of times our our native wildlife, you know, one way that we would get them to be part of our collection would be non-releasable injured wildlife. It might be um, someone found a litter of, of babies somewhere and there's no mom to be found, those kinds of deals. We do not just go out and... Bring no, raccoon yes. home. Of course. All joking aside, we've talked about this on the pod a bunch, but if you're a new listener, please know that zoos do not go out and collect animals in the wild basically ever anymore unless it is like, you know, a non-releasable situation or every once in a blue moon in a real desperate effort to save them for conservation. Um, all done with proper permitting and all of that kind of stuff. And when I say zoos, I mean AZA accredited and other accredited good zoos because that actually is what some roadside zoos do, which is why there are so many people in this industry who absolutely love zoos and hate roadside side zoos. Don't watch Tiger King, y'all. Um, yeah, but all, all joking aside, that is a really important message that we do want to stick to. Mark, I will get you a raccoon. No, I'm <laughs> I kid, I kid. But um, yes, thank you for bringing that up, though, because that is an actually really, you know, it's an important thing. It's an important message to share all of the time here um, on this pod. So speaking of how we get animals and zoos needing to breed and not pulling them in for the wild and things like that. You've recently gotten to be a part of um, breeding for several species in the interpretive department. Can you maybe just run down the list of the couple of species that we do breed in interpretive, um, what it's like getting to be part of those breeding programs, and then if you have any special stories about any breeding or anything you want to share? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so for anyone that's not familiar, um, the – the breeding plans that take place in accredited zoos uh, are all managed by the Species Survival Plan or the SSP. Um, when when I was working at the Cat Ambassador Program, our uh, director would joke that the SSP meeting is kind of like eHarmony meets the NFL draft. 
um, in that each of the animals is sort of ranked according to their uh, genetic representation in the population. Um, and it's all put up on kind of a leaderboard. And when, when the meeting is coming to an end, there's a line drawn and anybody above the line is recommended to breed and anybody below the line is not. Um, and so that those decisions are all made uh, based on a uh, lens into the future of ensuring that there's um, genetic diversity within the population. And that also is um, a reason why we would then not need to pull animals from, uh, from native ranges. Um, the, Cheetah SSP, for example, has been managed really, really well, um, and there's currently more genetic diversity in um, North American zoo cheetahs than there are in African savanna cheetahs. Um, so that is that is one, um, one SSP that Cincinnati is involved in. Uh, in our department, we have uh, some recommendations for um, our two-toed sloths. Uh, we have recommendations for a few of our armadillo species, and then we also have uh, recommendations for our bat-eared foxes and tamanduas. Um, and those uh, those last two have been um, introductions and breeding plans that I've been uh, more involved in uh, with Colleen planning that out, uh, getting our animals set up for success, getting um, eyes on observations of their interactions, um, a lot of record keeping, a lot of um, video footage is sent back and forth to one another of looking at what's going on. <laughs> You're sending animal porn to each other. Yeah. yeah. I mean, Hey, it's part of the zookeeper job. Like we, we talk about this, you know, it's, yeah, the it's real. The only reason I'll reject the word porn is the connotation that I'm enjoying it for a specific purpose. That's fair. But the content. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. It's the same. Yeah. That's fair. Yeah. <laughs> So yes, we send and, video and here footage we are. <laughs> back and forth. Um, it actually is really, really important, though, that we document when we think breeding happens and if we think breeding was, in fact, successful. So we do have to be pretty explicit in our descriptions as to be able to plan out an appropriate birth window to make sure we're ready for when kits, pups, cubs, you name it, um, when they come into the world. Yeah, so it makes total sense. Yeah. And a lot of it's really important just based on um, scheduling-wise, like we're not all here every single day. Uh, so being able to communicate changes in behavior, um, and that goes from leading up to pregnancy through the whole process, um, and then after after the offspring are here. Would you say that you feel like you see our team communicating at its best around times when we have babies on the horizon? I think so, yeah. Um, we... There's a lot going on every day, um, but I, I really do feel when we kind of unite around that common um, common goal, uh, common event, um, that everybody is really invested in, and wants to know all the updates. And it's it's fun when the little cuties arrive. <laughs> yeah. Agreed. And I think it's a time when I personally feel like our team leans on each other and people's expertise and people's niches and where they fall on the team. And we're all just excited to get it all done. So, yeah, yeah, it makes sense. And we've talked before about the, the Tamanduas, um, you know, Isla and Sal. And um, so you said that you were involved in like the the plan and the, the kind of introduction. So let's talk about that. What, what, what does that look like for for those two? 
Yeah, we um we have creative space uses uh, in all of our buildings, and so oftentimes there's a there's sort of a, a Tetris game that's played where okay, if this animal moves to this slightly different space, then that would open up another space so that we can introduce the two of them. What needs to be set up for a Tamandua date? Okay, that needs to have perching put into it. What did they like previously with, you know, taking into the history of the individual animals? Um, I, I learned throughout this process that Isla and Sal particularly like a suspended platform bed that swings around a little bit. Um, Go wherever you want with that. Yeah. Um, it wasn't coin operated, but they were, <laughs> they were able to uh, create the motion of the ocean on their, on their own. Okay. Um, and so just planning and strategizing all of those components of what needs to be here, what kind of setup needs to happen, um, who needs to be involved with all of that planning has been a really, um, a really big collaborative effort. That's really interesting. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm curious, all joking aside about, you know, oh, porn and stuff like that. Um, when, when we talk about this, like how important is it, um, not just for the individuals, but for the species as a whole, for y'all to understand and be able to communicate, uh, to other facilities, what you're seeing in breeding behavior? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, that's another part of this SSP coordination. Um, that's why I'm super excited that Colleen has this new role as well um, and is going to bring me along for the ride. Um, like knowledge in our field can't exist in a vacuum. Um, and so a big part of that communication is being able to share what has been successful, to be able to, um, to lean on other institutions that have had success with something that you might be um, trying to bring your program up to speed on. Uh, so I think it's, uh, it's really important to have that communication, um, with the mindset of looking at the species as a whole and their success. Um, and then when it comes down to like our individuals, um, breeding behavior and going through that gestation and, um, all of the, um, all of the components around that, are species-specific natural behaviors. Um, and so that also factors into the, the enrichment in allowing that, those opportunities uh, to be presented for the animals too. Yeah, that makes sense. Very cool. Very cool. Um, is all of that communication done through the SSP or is it literally like y'all just email each other if like some zoo has a question or something? Yes. Yep. Okay, that's fair. That's a good answer. Yeah, it can. Yes. What I'm honestly wondering, I guess the way that I, I didn't phrase this super well, but what I'm, I'm kind of wondering is, is there a central repository of knowledge? Or if not, why the heck isn't there? And can we make something like that for these various SSPs down the road? Because I feel like that would be way better than just everybody emailing each other randomly and saying, oh, yeah, our demand was like to get it on on a swinging bed. Like, So every SSP actually has the ability to kind of – structure themselves in the way that's best for um, distributing information for that species based on how many institutions might be involved, how many individuals, how many experts there are. Is there stuff, um, has there been research done on their wild counterparts, those types of things. So some SSPs are only made up of a few people. Some are made up 
of a lot of people. It depends how many subcommittees you've got going on and whatnot. So I think everybody just kind of does what works best for them as individual humans and individual groups of humans. So I'm part of the Tamandua SSP and part of the Battered Fox SSP, and we run things completely different um, for both SSPs. Um, well, so far, it works for both. Right, right. Um, I think the closest you get is the animal care manuals that are slowly but surely being written for different species. We don't have that many done yet, but um, that's a good central hub where tons of collaboration has gone into it um, and, and info has been collected that way. Sweet. That makes a lot of sense. Go ahead. I think into the future um – more opportunities for that uh, collaboration are going to happen as well, um, especially as zoos, as a general trend, are looking towards that kind of holistic approach. Um, so we are looking at nutrition. We're looking at enrichment. We're looking at habitat and environment. We're looking at um, social interactions. All of that stuff in a 24-hour life cycle. Um throughout the course of the entire life of that animal. Um, and so I think that with that lens and with more and more people really getting involved in it, um, that information will be compiled into a, a more centralized location. And you bring, a, bring up a good point about holistic care for the animals because we've found that with so many species that when a single one of those variables is out of place, then sometimes breeding isn't going to happen. So back to John's question about how crucial is the sharing of information. It's incredibly crucial that I know what to feed a tamandua if I want that tamandua to have babies, how much to feed that tamandua if I want that tamandua to have babies or a baby. They only usually have one um, and those kinds of things. But so we are taking more of a zoomed out holistic look and then zooming back in on the details, trying to make sure we get it right. Cool. I love that so much. No, I really do. That's really, that's a great answer. Thank you. Yeah. Um, Colleen, is there anything else that you want to ask before we get to our last two questions? Well, you put me on the spot like that. I usually do. Why are you making a pig nose right now? Because I got nervous. Oh, okay. That's just what you do when you get nervous. Apparently. <laughs> Apparently. Screaming her armadillo impression. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, I have no segue to this, so consider this my segue. Um, what is your favorite like training to be a part of? Is it like flying Zulu, teaching Bindi, like those kinds of uh, Taraco than Kookaburra? I should clarify. <laughs> yeah, I knew, but you're right. Other people don't. I should clarify. I don't know that it's specific to like one animal. Um, the, I mean, this, this isn't a new answer or something that's like particularly earth shattering. Um, but it's really incredible to see those steps and like when it clicks for the animal that you're able to then speak the same language. Like here's, here's what I was asking and here's where it made sense to you in the way that I was communicating it to the animal. Um, and so seeing that, that moment of like, Oh, that's what you wanted. <laughs> um, is, is really cool. And leading up to that moment is what, helps me grow as a trainer and being like, why isn't this more clear? So it's causing me to look uh, more introspectively on like, well, if the animal's not understanding what I'm saying, then I'm probably saying something wrong. Um, so the, it's not necessarily the, um, the end result with one particular animal. It's the whole process um, that's so interesting that keeps me coming back. 
That was beautiful and far more than I thought I was asking. But. I mean, Flying Zulu's cool, too. Yeah, it is. It is <laughs> Flying great. Zulu's is so cool. So I like, love Zulu so much. So basically, you'd say those light bulb moments along the way reinforce you wanting to keep training and If we're using training terminology, sure, yeah. I can't help it. <laughs> cool. And is there anything else that you'd like to add? Oh, you put me on the spot like that. <laughs> How come you're not can, doing I a I can also impression? do a big nose like Colleen. <laughs> I don't know why that happens. <laughs> I don't either, but I love it. <laughs> Usually my default. <laughs> I know. I've never seen you do that before. No, <laughs> no this was great. This was a, a really fun way to wrap up my work week. I walked in this morning. Colleen said, hey, you want to do a podcast today? <laughs> sure. <laughs> I love that. Awesome. Well, then the final two are conservation organization you'd like to give a shout out to. Yeah, uh, I have two if possible. Go for it. Um, so in, in every department that I've worked in, I've uh, kind of fallen into researching and figuring out what can we do beyond the grounds that we're working on right now? Um, and so two of the uh, two of the organizations that are nearer and dearer to my heart are uh, Cheetah Conservation Fund, um, Dr. Lori Marker's work out of Namibia. Um, incredible work with conservation, with education, with um, providing solutions as well. Um, so things like the Livestock Guard Dog Program, um, information on uh, the Cheetah Conservation Fund website is just incredible. Um, and so that's something from my from my work with the Cat Ambassador Program here that's near and dear to my heart. Um, and then currently uh, in our department, we are also responsible for the care of our two-toed sloths. And so the Sloth Institute in Costa Rica um, is doing a lot to build sloth speedways, uh, <laughs> which are rope bridges across fragmented habitat that allow sloths uh, safe passage so that they don't have to cross roads uh, in their in their space. I love that. It's time now, don't you know? We've come to the end of the show. But there's one tale left to go. You're gonna laugh and say, oh no. It's time for the Rossifari poop story. Hit me. Well... Funny you should say that. Uh, <laughs> Literally. While doing yard work in uh, the cheetah habitat, I realized that you have never fully lived until you've weed-whacked a unexpected pile of cheetah poop. <laughs> oh, no! And so I have lived. <laughs> and it hit you. It did. Oh, I bet it flew. Yeah. yeah. There was uh, just confetti. Confetti. I like it. I like it so much. Awesome. Well, thank you for taking the time to do this. Carnivore. Shifetti. Carnivore confetti. Yeah. We'll go for an alliterative. Poofetti. Yeah. Oh, I, I love the it. Best. Yeah. yeah. Poofetti. That was it. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to do this. I appreciate it. Thank you. Yeah. Oh, it's always such a great time at Cincinnati. And I love that Colleen was able to be involved in another episode. And um, Colleen literally just texted me a day ago and was like, hey, John, I have your next interview at Cincinnati already lined up. Uh, have a new teammate. And she already said yes. And blah, blah, blah. Great stories. I'm not going to spoil them here. But um, Colleen being a part of this family is just just wonderful. It makes me so happy. Um, so a couple of, of follows here uh, on Instagram at Cincinnati Zoo, at Zookeeper Colleen for Colleen, and at M Muthers, M M U T H E R S, uh, for 
Mark. And of course, all of those will be in the show notes. And you can also go to CincinnatiZoo.org to find out all of the things that are happening at the Cincinnati Zoo. So that's exciting. But that's not all that is exciting, my friends, because uh, I got one more special audio treat for you. Even though it didn't come up naturally in the episode today, I did ask Colleen to record this for you. Poop story. So yes, we are adding another voice to the chorus of, uh, well, I can't say it or else I'll have to start dropping another drops, but yeah, suffice to say, there is a new voice that is going to come up whenever we say the phrase poop story. Poop story. Oh, whoops. I totally said it on accident, obviously. Anyway, um, yeah, you can look forward to hearing Colleen on more episodes, at least, uh, you know, in little two word phrases. Also, thank you to my Red Panda-level patron, Laura Shank, and to all of my patrons who are uh, giving me some money every month through Patreon. I appreciate y'all, and you can go to patreon.com slash if you would like to contribute. That's also in the show notes. And uh, remember, friends, the word credits backwards is Stiderk. The Rossafari Podcast is produced, hosted, and engineered by John Rossi. Editing and fact-checking by John and Dr. Zoe Vesley-Gross. Our theme song is Sevens by Nathan Burke, performed by Nathan and John. Interrupting John theme and additional voices by Taylor Isaac Gray. You can reach John directly on Instagram and Facebook at Rossafari or by email at rossafaripod at gmail.com. Rossafari is part of the Daydreamer Media Network. Now, stop listening to me and go visit a zoo.